If you can open your Bibles to Jude, the book of Jude will be in the last two verses this morning, and I'm going to open us up in prayer before we begin. Lord, I thank you so much that you have brought uh, me here this morning, that you have gathered your saints together here in Hollister to hear your word, to fellowship with each other, to learn more about you, to learn about your will for our lives, to learn about how great you are. And I pray that you will just use your word this morning. I pray that you will help me to be clear in my preaching. I pray that the hearts and ears of everyone here will hear your word and will be encouraged and will go out and serve you all the more, learning how great you are and what you do in our lives. Lord, I pray that we will just be lights to the world. I pray you'll give us understanding. And I pray that our sole desire will be to see you, Lord, and to know you personally. And our greatest hope will be to stand in your presence. And I pray this in your name. Amen. In Matthew 7, Jesus warns his people, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Acts 20, Paul warns the pastors in Ephesus, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. John warns of similar things. He says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Titus warns that there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. The book of 2 Timothy warns, For the time will come when they, people, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. Peter warns that there are untaught and unstable people who are distorting Scripture. He says that false teachers will come into the church and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies and they will even deny Jesus Christ. Again and again, the New Testament has this message. False teachers are coming. Beware. Beware of false teachers. And then comes the book of Jude. And its message is clear from the very beginning to the very end. The false teachers are here. The book of Jude is a rather depressing book. If you read through it beginning and end, it's hard to find a lot of joy in it. In verse 3, if you'll look there with me, Jude says this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. You can kind of sense the excitement that Jude would have had as he set out to write this letter. He set out to write about our common salvation. There's really no greater thing that we as believers can come together and speak about and, and hear the word of God being taught about. Our common salvation, what Jesus Christ did for us, how he died, how he rose again to save us. And Jude wanted to, to write about this to this church, but there were more pressing matters at hand for him to write about. He tells us that he found it necessary to write to them 
exhorting them that they contend earnestly for the faith, that they fight for the faith, that they suffer to defend the faith, that they struggle and have vigor defending this faith. And why does he have to write about this? He says in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus and the apostles warned that this would happen, but now it is here. Ungodly people have secretly come into the church, and they are introducing false doctrines, false teachings. And they're, they're even teaching that we can give in to any sin we want, any desires, you can indulge in them because the grace of God covers them. But that's not the truth. The grace of God may cover our sins, but that's not license for us to give in to any sins that we please. These people are greedy. They've come in to, to morph the gospel into their own desires, and they are bringing people with them. And we see that even in our churches today. There are people secretly within the church. There are big mega churches that are teaching things that are unbiblical because they are greedy, because they want wealth. They are tickling people's ears because the people have desires that they want to they wanna hear those things being taught. They desire to hear things taught, so they find teachers that teach according to what they want. Jude is warning about this. And Jude goes on. I'm going to run through really quickly the book of Jude, just for context. But in verse 5, he compares these ungodly people that are in the church to the Jews that Jesus destroyed in the wilderness. The unbelieving Jewish people that did not believe in God. He destroyed them. And Jude is comparing these people to these Jews. And then he compares them to, to demons that have disobeyed God, that have left their proper abode, and Jesus has them in prison until the day of judgment. They are like these people, the, or these demons, that have not obeyed God. And then he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, if we recall in Genesis, they gave themselves over to sexual immorality, to wicked sins. And God destroyed them with fire, even eternal fire, as Jude says. He's comparing these people within the churches to people from Sodom and Gomorrah who were destroyed. Jude says that these people defile the flesh, in verse 8, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 10 says... They blaspheme things that they don't understand. Verse 11 says they've gone in the way of Cain. They have the same error that Balaam had. They are rebellious like Korah. Verse 12 says they are like hidden reefs in their love feasts. You think of a boat that's, that's sailing on the water and they can't see the reef, but the reef destroys their ship from underneath. They're like these hidden reefs. They, they have no fear. They care only for themselves. They're like clouds without water. They have no real substance in them. They're carried along by the winds one way or another. They're like autumn trees that don't bear fruit. No fruit, and they are doubly dead, and they are uprooted. They are like wild waves of the sea. They cast up their own shame like foam. They're like wandering stars that wander in darkness forever. Verse 14, Jude speaks of a prophecy by Enoch. And he says this, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones 
to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If there's one word that stands out to you in these verses, it's ungodly. Four times in it, one single verse. Jude calls these people ungodly, 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 ungodly within the church, and they're hidden. He calls these people grumblers. They find fault in others. They're following after their own lusts. Their mouths speak arrogantly, and they flatter people for the sake of their own benefit. These people are mockers, verse 18. They follow under ungodly lusts. And then verse 19, they cause divisions, they're worldly-minded, and they do not have the Spirit. This is pretty intense. Such language throughout the entire book of these people that have crept into the churches, the false teachers. It's such a dire warning. These people are here. What do we do? In verse 20, Jude transitions, and he starts to direct the church directly saying, this is what you need to do in response. And if you look at these verses with me, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy. And for others, save, snatching them out of the fire, and on others have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. I could preach a whole sermon just on these application points, but I have to summarize them for you this morning. And I think you can summarize them as this in, in three simple applications. First, build yourself up in the faith. Be strengthened in the truth. Second, keep yourself in the love of God. Don't stray away from the faith. Keep the faith that's handed down to us in the word of God. Don't swerve from it to the right or the left. And then last, snatch people away from the fire, from the false teachings, from those who have crept into the church. Build yourself up in the faith. Keep yourself in the faith. And defend others from falling away from the faith. And that leads us into the last two verses, which are our text this morning. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. I grew up in Gilbert, Arizona, and attended a classical charter school. And almost all of my peers, my classmates, my friends, were Mormon. And I found myself thinking throughout high school at times, what keeps me from falling away into such erroneous beliefs as all of my friends, all of my classmates? There are so many false religions, so many false faiths. What keeps me from falling away? This fear could be real for, for any of us at different times of our lives, especially after reading or just going through the book of Jude so fast. We see that there are ungodly people in the church trying to draw us away. 
What keeps us from falling away? These people seem vicious. They're unnoticed within the church. And I have the command to keep myself in the love of God, to keep others from falling away from the faith, to build myself up in the faith. This is what Jude tells us to do. It's like, yeah, right, I can't do that. I can hardly get out of bed in the morning without my first thought being a complaint or a sinful thought. It alone keep myself in the faith and keep others in the faith. But this is the command to train yourself up in the faith and to stand firm in it. How do we do this? It seems like an impossible task, but we don't have to do it alone. And this is what this first part of this verse tells us. 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now even here, it's a big transition from the rest of the passage. Jude has been speaking to the church this entire time, but now he's speaking directly to God. He's directing this to God, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is how he describes God. Now the word stumbling here is always used in Scripture to refer to a moral or a spiritual stumbling. Most people that go to this verse think of stumbling and they just think of sin. God who is able to keep us from sinning. And while that is certainly true, if you consider the context of the book of Jude, you'll understand that it's not just keeping away from sin. God doesn't just keep us from sinning. He keeps us from falling away into these false doctrines, into falling away into the trap of these unbelievers, of these ungodly people. God is able to keep us from stumbling, to falling away into false gospels. And Jude says that God is able to, he is able. He's not like a guard who's set on a watchtower that's still able to miss sometimes when the enemy's approaching. He can look out, and most of the time he can catch it, but sometimes he's going to fail. He's going to fall asleep in his post. That's not God. He is able to protect us and to guard us. He has the power. He has the ability. He has the authority, and he has the intent to keep those that he has saved from falling away from the faith. We have that command to keep ourselves in the love of God. But the paradoxical truth is that even as we are striving to keep ourselves and guard ourselves in the faith, it is really God who keeps us and protects us. And God is able to do more than just keep us from stumbling. Look at the next part of the verse. It says, And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God does more than just guard us from sin and bad doctrine. One day we will stand in the very presence of God's glory. This is such a significant theme in Scripture, beholding the glory of God. It is the greatest hope that any of us as believers can ever have, to dwell in his presence with joy and not with terror, to stand in humble awe and love of him for what he's done for us. That is a great hope. And it says God is able to make us stand in his presence. This theme of the presence and glory of God is found from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture. What did Adam and Eve do? They walked in the garden with God. But when they sinned, what did they lose? They lost that intimate relationship with God, being able to walk with him in the garden. What was the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple? It was so that God could dwell in the midst of his people. And it was an amazing privilege for the Jewish people to have God and his glory dwelling in their midst. 
Recall back to Exodus 33, when Moses requests to see the glory of God, and God revealed part of his glory to Moses. But Moses couldn't witness the full glory of God, because no man can witness the full glory of God and live. In Psalm 27, David reveals his greatest desire. He says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I shall seek. One thing that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is David's sole desire, is to be in the presence of God. And you see that all throughout the Psalms, all throughout Scripture. This is a great hope for all of us as believers. We can look forward to dwelling in God's presence, in his glory. What was so significant about Jesus' birth? He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. That's God in the form of human kind. He became human flesh and he dwelled among us. It's amazing. And then at the very end, Revelation 21, we see, we see the picture of, of the end, new heaven and new earth. Let's turn there really quick. It's only a few pages away. I guess a few more than a few pages. But Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among men, and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's the hope that we have. At the very end of all things, God himself is going to tabernacle. He's going to dwell within the midst of his people. And we get to stand in his glory and how is God able to make us wicked sinners stand in his presence? Well, the text tells us he, he makes us blameless. God makes us blameless. And that's why we can stand in his presence without terror. For, for the sinner, one day they are going to behold God's glory. But they're not going to be able to behold his glory with great joy. They're going to behold his glory with the utmost terror, because that God, full of wrath and hatred for their sin, is going to destroy them, is going to judge them with a lake of fire. But we can stand in his presence with great joy, because he makes us blameless. No one that's not blameless can stand in his presence. No one stained with sin can see God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who took on our sin and suffered God's wrath for our sin, so that we could be positionally blameless before God. And also, he is sanctifying us currently to make us more like his son. He's conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we die, our sanctification will be complete. And what we are now positionally as blameless in Jesus Christ, though we still sin, then we will not have any more sin. And we will be then perfect. We will be then what we are now positionally. And it's an amazing thing. 
And that's why we can stand in the presence of God blameless with great joy. Because we will be blameless. And this is, this is great joy. This isn't just like your favorite thing here on earth. This is the greatest joy, greatest fulfillment that you could ever have. Is being in God's presence. Seeing his glory. I mean, we were, re- we were made to reflect his glory. Now we get to actually see his glory. It's amazing. Remember how earlier, verse 3, Jude said he wanted to write about our common salvation? Well, now it, it almost seems like he just couldn't keep it in. Like, he didn't write about it through most of the book, but he had to get to it a little bit by the end. Now he gets to write about our common salvation, just a little bit, even if it's so brief. This is the culmination. The very end of our salvation is this, to be in the presence of God and his glory. In a book that speaks so much of grave matters, of evil things, even like hidden within the church, it's so refreshing to see that the book ends with the greatest joy of all. While verse 24 speaks to what God is able to do for us, Verse 25 ends the whole book by declaring God's attributes. Jude says, To the only God, our Savior. There is only one God, and he is the only Savior of mankind in the entire world. False teachers may claim that there are other gods, or that you can be saved by someone else, or something else, or even by your own works. But no, there is no other God, The Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. And God says in Isaiah 43, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I only, I am the Lord. There is no other Savior beside me. To the only God, our Savior. Salvation comes from God, and it comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And why did he do it? Why did he have to come and live a perfect life? So that his perfect righteousness could be counted as our righteousness, even though it was not our own. And he took our sin on the cross so that he could pay God's holy wrath, pay the punishment of God's holy wrath on that cross so that we wouldn't have to suffer that eternal punishment. And he rose again. Why did Jesus rise again? He rose again because in his resurrection, he secured our resurrection in the future. In our new glorified bodies, we would not be resurrected in new glorified bodies if Jesus Christ hadn't risen from the dead. Salvation, every aspect of Jesus' life was, was part of our salvation. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And because of what God did through Jesus Christ, all glory, all majesty, all might, and all authority are God's. He has these and they are owed to him. All glory is God's. He is perfect and holy and there is no one like him. No one can comprehend his greatness. No one can comprehend his glory. No one compares to him. Everyone owes him recognition of his glory, and we need to ascribe to him his glory. And that's what we do when we sing songs. We're singing of his glory, of his greatness. 
That should make us sing so much more with great joy. This isn't just something that we do on a Sunday morning. We are singing because our God is so great. It should bring joy to our hearts as we read those words. He is glorious in nature. He has magnificence and beauty within him from nothing else. And his glory is going to be reflected in a physical manifestation that we can witness. And that's what we will one day see. All majesty is God's. Majesty speaks to his greatness, his preeminence over everything. He's supreme over all of creation. And we should be in utter awe of him because of who he is. He's the creator. He's Lord over the church. He's the Lord over our salvation. He is, he is majestic. He is supreme. He is so much greater than everything. All might is God's. That next word, might, it really speaks to dominion, to his, his authority, his power over all of the world, over all of creation. God sovereignly rules the entire universe, and nothing's out of his control. Nothing. Even when there are so many false, ungodly teachers and ungodly people within the churches and within the world, within our cultures, God is still in control. He is still sovereign. He still is mighty. Not even Satan compares to God. I remember seeing some images of like Jesus and and Satan like arm wrestling and like they're it's like they're struggling against each other. That's not the case. Satan doesn't stand a chance. For a little bit of time, God has given this world over to Satan. But Jesus is coming back and he will end Satan. He will end evil. He will end death. He will establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. And then he will create a new heaven and a new earth where he will dwell with us. He has complete sovereign rule over this world. He is powerful. He is mighty. He has all dominion. And all authority is God's. He has authority over all of us. We all must submit to him. No one is greater than him. We need to submit to what he's given us, his will, right here in the word of God. This is our God. Glorious, majestic, mighty, and has authority. And he doesn't just have it for some time. He's had it before all time, before anything ever existed, before he said the words, let there be light. He was glorious, majestic, mighty, and had authority. And he has it now, and he will have it forever. Praise be to this God that we can serve. This is really the perfect ending to the book of Jude. After reading the book, you're, you're left with an impossible task, it seems. But we see that it's really God who's working in us to keep us in the faith, to guard us. And this, the, this end sets our minds to what is really most important, which is the glory of God. We live our lives and do all things for the glory of God. And as we deal with what dishonors him, we need to remember who our God is so that we can honor him and that we can guard our congregations, our churches from evil. How can we apply what we've learned here today in our lives? First, 
while we're all striving to build ourselves up in the faith, to stay in the faith, and, and to encourage each other in the faith. Don't be discouraged. Trust God who will take you to the very end, who will carry you and guard you to the end. There's no need to be anxious. Trust in him. Paul sums it up well in Philippians. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Second, remember who God is and give glory to him. These two verses are rich, doxology, rich praise. And we should always have these praises running from our lips. This is our God. Glorious, majestic, mighty, has authority. This is God. We're going to end in Revelation 5. If you all want to turn there with me. I'll start in verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That is our God who keeps us to the end. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord,